0: Hello everybody and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah
1: and I'm Ben.
0: Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben?
1: Pretty good, pretty good. How about yourself?
0: Uh, Doing all right. It's the holiday season, and I (laughs) spent the day shopping Mm -hmm. and looking for a specific book Mm -hmm. to no avail, Mm. because it's a specific edition. And then the other thing that I did today was research about shrews.
1: (laughs) Yes, which you did entirely unprompted.
0: Yes, because... Uh, well, how about you tell the fine folks at home what we are watching?
1: Tonight, we are watching The Killer Shrews from 1959, directed by Ray Kellogg. No relation.
0: <laughs> no relation to the person behind the cereal that was marketed as an anti-masturbation aid?
1: I mean, he had like a whole operation. He had like a whole like wellness center spa thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a whole thing. Kellogg was a wild dude, but no relation.
0: No relation to Mr. Ray Kellogg. Correct. Um, Yeah, so we're watching The Killer Shrews, and I was like, you know what? The only thing I know about shrews is their depiction in Redwall, which is racialized as Roma. Oh, that's
1: interesting and weird.
0: And weird. Um,
1: I mean, so if you don't know Redwall, it's an anthropomorphic, like, rodent. Universe, and all of the rodents are like vaguely racialized, if I'm not mistaken, and also kind of like vaguely like moralized, like mice are always good guys, and and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah, good series, but you have to have that background so you don't internalize those things. Yeah. But with that being my only context for what a shrew was, I was like, okay, well, let's actually figure it out. Sure. Uh, so I am excited to share shrew facts. Throughout the episode
1: okay well um what's what's a shrew
0: a shrew is a rodent that is smaller than a mouse there are many different types of shrews, but the common shrew is based in europe uh kind of going all the way far left into like the uk not quite going into spain so they're in like france and germany and stuff they're as far north as like norway and they do reach far east um towards like the last two-thirds of russia
1: Hmm. basically my only context for shrews is like william shakespeare using shrew as like a metaphor for an unpleasant woman and like the adjective shrewish to describe um well an unpleasant woman uh, so I, I, don't know a lot about shrews, quite well, frankly.
0: See, rats are large. Yes. So it makes sense that, you know, people would point to shrews as being attached to like a feminine version of hmm. unpleasant person. Sure. right? They, uh, that kind of feminization tends to go to smaller creatures. Right, right, right. Uh, okay. shrews are also venomous.
1: Mm. Okay. So they're small and venomous. So they're they're pests.
0: They're absolutely pests. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, you just think of them as like small venomous mice. Mm-hmm. They're venomous because they can't see for shit. I see. Which also means that they have echolocation.
1: Amazing. <laughs> so this is a movie about giant shrews. Okay. But, you know, in...
0: Bodens of unusual size? Yes. I don't think they exist.
1: <laughs> uh, in the best sort of D&D tradition... Something being described as giant is always, you know, in proportion to what size it started out with. So these shrews are not like kaiju shrews. They are like the size of dogs, which compared to how big a shrew normally is, is yeah, a giant shrew.
0: That's a little terrifying because shrews need to eat 200 to 300% of their body weight every day. Oh, wow. Which means that they could starve to death if they don't eat every few hours. Amazing. How long do shrews live? Like average mice rodent. I
1: have no context for what that is. Like, do mice live like two weeks? Do they live five years? Do they live a hundred years? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm realizing this now. We'll say five years. Five years. Okay.
0: Um, I don't have the actual date in front of me.
1: So if I was a shrew... I would need to eat like 800 pounds of food
0: a day. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a good thing I'm not a shrew.
0: Yes. Um, Especially because it's winter right now. Uh Uh-huh. Their metabolism is so fast, they can't save up enough fat to hibernate. Oh. So without those kind of fat reserves or whatever they you know don't hibernate during the winter but they also you know can't eat that same amount of food every day Mm because it's winter Mm -hmm. what do you think they did as like an evolution adaptation sort of thing
1: well so honestly my first thought was if they're venomous what if they like poisoned a human to death and then just like munched on its carcass like preserves style for months but i'm gonna guess cannibalism no. Oh, they don't eat each other. Okay, what no. do they do? I
0: mean, they might eat each other, mm. but um, also point of fact, the venom is like, they eat insects, mm. maybe small frogs, smaller sure. rodents, like, they aren't going after large prey. <laughs> yet. Um, <laughs> yet. That's where the giant shoes come in. Um, no, they, this is wild, and this is why I'm making a point to bring it up. Mm-hmm. They shrink. For example, their skulls will shrink by nearly 20% and their brains will shrink as much as 30% so that they are smaller and need less food through the winter. So that's
1: kind of like if every winter you just turned into the child version of yourself.
0: Yeah. The total body mass will drop about 18% and then when spring returns, they return to their normal size.
1: That's fucked up.
0: Yeah. Like their literal bones...
1: That's fucked up.
0: Yeah. Yep. That's uh <laughs> okay, I that's guess, shoes. I, I guess
1: I'm learning that shrews are maybe a more appropriate choice for a horror movie monster than I thought.
0: Okay. Well, tell us about this movie.
1: Okay. So this, as you may not be surprised to learn, was an indie production. A very indie production. Like a regional, <laughs> local kind of production. Wow. Um, The primary financier behind this very... Indie regional local production was Radio Maverick Gordon McClendon, the man credited with perfecting the top 40 radio format. <laughs> this guy didn't create top 40 radio, but he's the guy who popularized it. Um, he was born in Paris, Texas, in 1921. And he became interested in broadcasting in high school when he would do like the commentary. For the high school football team games over the school's PA. Okay. So he was accepted into Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And he was offered a scholarship for Harvard and Princeton. Wow. So he decided to go to Yale because that was the one that didn't offer him a scholarship.
0: That's poor choice.
1: This is some like... um,
0: I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Yeah,
1: this is some like, I don't take handouts shit. Um, so he goes to Yale, he was an intelligence officer in World War II, and his first wife was the daughter of former Louisiana governor and controversial oil tycoon, James No. Yes. Using, <laughs> after the war, uh, using money from his dad, he bought a radio station in Palestine, Texas, and eventually, um, McClendon bought, like, just, a. Uh, Large number of radio stations throughout Texas and gradually formed the Liberty Radio Network, which then became the second largest radio network in the United States. McClendon became famous uh, throughout the country for his sports commentary on his stations, uh, particularly their commentary on Major League Baseball. Mm. McClendon's stations brought the top 40 format to Texas and then popularized it to the nation. He also pioneered easy listening stations, all-news stations, traffic reports, mobile news units, and editorializing on radio, in his case for conservative causes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: He briefly owned a number of television stations, uh, which he sold to Winnipeg executive Izzy Asper, who then founded what is now known as the Global Television Network.
0: Okay. Okay that's still in production today global tv yes
1: he owned a chain of mcclendon movie theaters across uh, the south and so of course like many exhibitors before him he decided to try his hand at producing his own content and like so many before him he decided to start with monster movies
0: (laughs) now i'm really curious about where the killer shrews came from because the common shrew is in europe I didn't dig into any of the other like types mm. uh if there's like a shrew native to Texas or something mm.
1: so uh McClendon funded a double feature because he sees what's going on uh with the kids these days <laughs> uh so this film, the Killer Shrews, was shot back to back by the same crew as the giant Gila monster, mm. Uh, McClendon also narrates the killer shrews and appears in the cast as Dr. Baines.
0: Okay. Now, now point of fact, Gila monsters are in Texas. Like they are in the United States. Mm.
1: So at one point in the 1960s, um, so after the production of this movie, McClendon even became the largest shareholder of Columbia Pictures. Oh. For like a couple of years. Okay. Columbia went through some rough times in the 60s and <laughs> 70s vis-a-vis who was owning it, uh, at any given moment. Now, McClendon was a conservative Democrat um, because those of you in the listening audience with like a knowledge of U.S. political history will remember that before the civil rights movement, um, the Democratic Party was the right wing party in the U.S. And it was sort of in the 60s of the civil rights movement that the two parties switched. Um, so he was a conservative Democrat. He ran for senator in 1964. He lost. Um, I think he got like 48 percent of the vote. And then he also ran for governor of Texas in 1968, but he pulled out of that race due to Democratic President Lyndon B. Johnson's left-wing policies and view on the Vietnam War. So he basically was like, this party isn't for me anymore, and he left the Democratic Party, which made him, you know, not viable to be the Democratic candidate for governor of Texas. Uh, And yeah, he had a long career as a media mogul. Um, At one point in 1985, Uh, He almost killed himself cleaning his .38 pistol at his ranch, um, but what he actually died of was cancer uh, on his ranch in Texas in 1986. Okay. McClendon's partner in the financial venture to produce these two uh, sci-fi monster movies was Ken Curtis, uh, who would also go on to act in The Killer Shrews. Ken Curtis was born Curtis Wayne Gates in 1916 in Colorado. He was the son of a rancher and sheriff, quarterback of his high school football team, served in World War II, and then dropped out of college to pursue a musical career.
0: Musical as in on stage?
1: Um, So initially, he was the lead singer for the Tommy Dorsey band um, after Frank Sinatra went solo from that group. Uh, So he was brought on to replace Sinatra in 1941. Tommy Dorsey is the one who changed his name to Ken Curtis. Um, He recorded with like a bunch of different bands throughout the 1940s. Columbia Pictures signed him in 1945 to appear as a singing cowboy. And after he married director John Ford's daughter in 1952, he appeared often in John Ford and John Wayne projects. After years of movie and TV appearances throughout the 1950s and 60s, uh, he got his most notable role when he joined the cast of Gunsmoke in season 13 in mm-hmm. 1967 as um, one of Marshall Matt Dillon's deputies. He actually has the title of the longest lasting deputy on the show with an 11-year run.
0: Nice. Yeah, I was about to give context to, uh, I guess that's season 13 out of like 50.
1: Yeah, Gunsmoke was on for a very long time, folks. Uh, And uh, yeah, Ken Curtis passed away in
0: 1991.
1: Wow. So we've got some money and we're going to make some monster movies. Well, the thing about monster movies is you need special effects. Yes. So who are you going to get to do your special effects? Paul
0: Blaisdell.
1: Nope. We're going to (laughs) get Ray Kellogg who was the head of the special effects department at 20th Century Fox. Oh. Born in 1905 in Iowa, Edgar Ray Kellogg uh, got his start in movie making when he served in the field photography branch of the OSS during World War II. Uh, That's the precursor to the CIA, for anyone who doesn't know. And he was one of the camera operators uh, for the OSS during the Nuremberg Trials. Hmm. During the war, uh, he met John Ford, and they became buddies, and so after the war, he went to Hollywood, becoming involved in special effects photography, and by 1954, he was head of special effects at 20th Century Fox, working on such films as The Day the Earth Stood Still, Titanic, Inferno, The Robe, Prince Valiant, and actually most of Marilyn Monroe's films for 20th Century Fox.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Kellogg agreed to do the special effects for these two indie, Texas, low-budget monster movies on one condition.
0: I want to direct.
1: Correct, yeah. So, these would be his first feature films, uh, both movies he directed. Um, And that probably seemed like a really good deal, like getting the head of a major studio's effects department, you know, just... All we need to do is let him direct. But the thing is, um, the Killer Shrews had a budget of $123,000. And the giant Gila monster had a budget of $138,000. And Kellogg, well, he typically made special effects for films that were budgeted around a million dollars.
0: Yeah, no, this is uh, out of his wheelhouse in that regard.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like being like, okay, I need someone to design like an app for my startup. And you get like Steve Jobs, but <laughs> he has no, him but he first. has like no team, right? Like you just get him. You're not getting Apple. You're just getting him. And you're like, program my
0: app. He's like, Bird. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: um, for the giant Gila monster, what they did was they sort of just let a bearded lizard traipse around a miniature city and landscape.
0: Yeah. Gila monsters are hella dangerous.
1: Um, and then for the killer shrews, they created hand puppets for the close-ups. Oh my
0: god.
1: And dressed coon hounds in costumes for the wide shots. So, you know, we have this guy who is in charge of like amazing special effects for these big movies, but like you hand him twelve dollars and there's only so much he can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh aside from Ken Curtis and Gordon McLendon, the producers who also appear in the film. Uh, the movie stars James Best, who would later become best known
0: for his... <laughs> Sorry, because his last name is Best and Best Known. I start laughing.
1: Who would later become uh, well-known for his role as Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane on the Dukes of Hazzard from 1979 to 1985. Okay. So Best, uh, he was born Jewel Guy in 1926 in <laughs> Kentucky. his mother was the sister of ike everly who was the father of the everly brothers yeah at age three his mother died and he was given up for adoption at which point he became james best Uh, best served as a military police in post-war germany and discovered a love of acting in like plays put on by the army in 1949 he got a contract at universal and he established himself with a career in westerns. Like many other actors of that period, he also appeared in like a ton of television. But it's his role on the Dukes of Hazard that is certainly what he is best known for. In his later years, he taught acting at the University of Central Florida and the University of Mississippi. And he became a landscape painter among many other hobbies. Wow. He passed away in 2015.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. From what I understand, like he was just an all around like great guy. Yeah.
0: Kind of a, one of the best.
1: Sure. You could say that. <laughs> uh, our sort of token girl in this movie is played by Ingrid Good, the 22 <laughs> James Best and Ingrid Good
0: very good i love this
1: ingrid good was the 22 year old winner of the 1956 miss sweden beauty pageant and she was brought over to america along with the winners of the 1956 miss europe and miss universe contests on a contract with universal but by 1958 she had gotten out of that contract and was just sort of operating as an independent actress so both The Killer Shrews and The Giant Gila Monster were shot in Dallas, Texas. They were the first feature films shot in Dallas. And um, fun fact, The Killer Shrews was edited by Aaron Stell, who was the third of the four editors who worked on Orson Welles's Touch of Evil.
0: Is that in the future or is that in the past? That's
1: in the past. Touch of Evil was in 1958. Uh, Stell was the... I want to say first editor brought on after control of the movie was taken away from Orson Welles. But yeah, there were ultimately four people who worked on that movie. Stell was number three.
0: Okay. And I have also confirmed that there is a shrew native to Texas. It's the Southern short-tailed shrew. It's in like the southeastern part of the US. It is the smallest shrew that tends to measure seven to 10 centimeters. Oh, wow. That's like three to four inches for our american friends and weighing less than 14 grams
1: that's a small critter
0: yes uh it is venomous okay and uh more specifically it's like the shrew's saliva it's not like a viper okay but it like you know when it bites into something it the venom gets in got it yeah like um like the galapagos islands like big
1: komodo dragons yeah
0: like komodo dragons damn shoes are like komodo dragons
1: yeah see this is why if they're big they're they're scary
0: yeah uh they still use echolocation um they can breed quite quick but that makes sense because they are rodents and i'm not seeing anything about uh them getting super small during winter maybe because texas doesn't really have winters in the same way um, but yeah, there, there you go. The Texan Shrew.
1: So, uh, initially released on June 25th, 1959 in Texas, the double feature did so well, it ended up being nationally distributed. Damn. And uh, then it did so well that it even like got some foreign distribution. Um, ultimately, it grossed around a million dollars.
0: Wow. That's yeah. kind of what they're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, both films... Have been riffed on by Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, They've also both received numerous cheap DVD releases because they are in the public domain. Um, A sequel, Return of the Killer Shrews, came out in 2012 and actually featured James Best reprising his role.
0: Good for him.
1: In 2016, a remake slash parody was produced entitled Attack of the Killer Shrews. Okay. Okay. And yeah, we are going to be watching The Killer Shrews on Tubi. It is also on YouTube. Um, And if you want to, which I don't know why you would, you can pay money to watch a colorized version on YouTube. But the original film is in black and white.
0: Well, folks, if you do want to watch either black and white or color on YouTube, you can head on over to our Scream Scene playlist on ScreamScenePodcast.com. You are going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Killer Shrews from 1959, directed by Ray Kellogg.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Killer Shrews from 1959, directed by Ray
0: Kellogg. Sarah, what did you think? Interesting. Not hugely good, but, you know, it did, it did spook us a couple times. Hmm. We did jump a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think?
1: Hot take? The Killer Shrews is good, actually.
0: Uh, you would have been one of the people in line to see this multiple times, so it could make a million dollars?
1: Yeah. Each with a different date.
0: I don't know if I would say it was great, but, um, I said
1: good, actually.
0: Uh, 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 sure.
1: (laughs) Well, let's, uh, talk about the story and then we can dive into our opinions on the film.
0: Sure just to clarify so in the context setting you had asked me how long do shrews live Mm. and i was like i don't know like five years yeah they live on average about one year okay um different varieties of shrew will live longer but it seems to be like let's say like two years like one to three years okay so when we open we see captain thorn and his first mate rook and they are arriving to an isolated island with supplies for a Dr. Kragus. Uh, This is the first time that they've done this route. They land on shore and Dr. Craigus meets them. He's like, yeah, I'm hoping my daughter Anne can go back to civilization when you leave. But Thorne explains like, actually, there's like a really bad hurricane on the way. Haven't you heard about it? Um, we can't leave right now. Uh, we need to stay the night. Now Craigus, Anne, and Jerry is here as well to uh you know escort them. And uh everyone seems like uh a, a little worried and a little concerned that they can't leave till morning, but okay, it's a hurricane. Rook goes back to the boat to prep things for the hurricane, while Thorne goes with Craigus, Jerry, and Anne back to their house. And we learn a little bit more about everyone's relations. So Craigus is uh, father to Anne. Jerry and Anne used to be engaged, and Kragus is here doing research with shrews, um, with Jerry as an assistant, Dr. Baines as an assistant, and kind of keeping the house in order is Mario. Now, everyone, but particularly Anne, is very jumpy and cagey about Thorn leaving after dark, and we learn at gunpoint... um, <laughs> Thorne tries to leave and Anne grabs a gun and says like, you're not leaving and here's why. Uh, So when they were explaining the shrew research, it was because of concerns about overpopulation with the idea that like, we'll keep like reproducing and living long lifespans, So we got to make ourselves smaller so that the resources we have on hand will sustain us longer. That's kind of the idea.
1: Yeah. So they're trying to like isolate, the genes growth. from shrews about yeah yeah
0: yeah so you know that makes sense like that's how people experiment with mice because mm-hmm. they repopulate so quickly well it turns out they did identify the growth gene or whatever and in trying to stimulate that growth gene to make shoes smaller uh they made shoes bigger um particularly these are mutant shrews um and as dr cragus says Uh, everything terrible about shrews got amplified as
1: well. All of the negative traits.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So these things, um, they were also like super smart. So they snuck out of the lab and escaped. And now there are like two to 300 giant shrews all over the island. They've uh, kind of eaten through the smaller creatures on this isolated island. So cragus and everyone are kind of hoping that soon they'll like die out because they need to eat every like 12-ish hours
1: yeah their plan is just to kind of like wait it out until all the shrews eat each other yeah i will say that two to three hundred killer shrews definitely scarier than 20 to 30 feral hogs
0: yes you still need that uh machine gun or whatever (laughs) it was so as they are explaining this, we, the audience, see the killer shrews in action as they attack and kill Rook, who no one pays any mind to about him, like not being in the compound uh, until later in the movie.
1: Well, I actually think that Thorn wanted Rook to stay on the boat overnight, so I don't think he was expecting him back. Okay. Yeah, because Thorn himself was going to head back to the boat.
0: Yeah. So, the shrews attack and kill Rook. Um, We see that they also go after the remaining livestock outside the compound. And now, they're getting inside the house. So, throughout the film, we see that Mario gets bit at one point, and he, like, dies practically immediately from the venom. But according to this movie uh shoes don't have venom instead it's actually um they had concocted the worst poison known to man and put it out as bait to try to kill the shoes and instead i guess they adapted to the poison and now that poison is just in their saliva
1: Mm -hmm. because that's that's how that works
0: yeah so through this movie I will be saying that the shoes poisoned people. I am not getting venom and poison mixed up. It's to keep with the way that this movie has described it. Sure. Which is very dumb.
1: Yes. Um yeah, you already had a thing. Like you didn't need to explain Yeah. Yeah.
0: Maybe people thought it would be like too
1: Unless like Texas shrews aren't venomous. They are venomous. Oh, you checked. Okay.
0: And particularly it's saliva that's venomous right so like they They would have been fine they didn't need to do
1: anything yeah
0: as i mentioned before ann and jerry were engaged Mm -hmm. uh up until last night when ann and jerry were like walking through the outside the compound and the shrews charged them and jerry basically like pushed ann aside was like better you than me bitch and like ran inside and practically locked the door behind him um, so Anne's like, you are a coward. You were willing to let me die. I'm not marrying you. Yeah, and you Jerry, suck. <laughs> Jerry is really upset about this. <laughs> and now that Thorne is around, clearly, clearly he is his romantic rival. And Jerry just has it out for Thorne.
1: My favorite thing about that is that like he's so angry about Thorne. Like, spending time around Anne, and he thinks, like, Thorne's trying to steal Anne from him. But at no point does Jerry, like, really put any effort to be around Anne himself. Like, any time where, like, he could be the one helping Anne out the door and over the wall or, like, whatever. Like, he just doesn't. He's only concerned about Jerry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So... It's established in the film that uh, shrews, including these giant shoes, are nocturnal. I don't know if that's true or false, but that's how it is in the movie. Um, And so they're hoping to just last through the night so that in the daytime they can make their way to the boat and hopefully they can sail out despite the hurricane. Now, trying to last through the night uh, doesn't necessarily go according to plan because the shoes are getting inside. At one point, Dr. Baines gets bit and he says, I'm fine. Uh, In a very like, I've been bitten by a zombie, but I'm not going to tell anyone else. Yes. Um, And then proceeds to like scientific method, write down all of his symptoms up until he dies. Yeah. In a very fun moment. Now they've reached morning and Thorne is like, okay, I'm going to try to make it to the boat they don't seem to be around, and then I'll give a sign, like a whistle or whatever, for when you guys can come follow. And Jerry goes with them. And immediately, Jerry tries to kill Thorn with a bullet to his back, and you know that doesn't go well. They discover Rook has been killed and eaten, and that... The shrews don't give a fuck about daylight now. They are starving, and so they chase them back to the compound. Jerry and Thorne get into a very classic Western fight to the point where Thorn is almost ready to throw Jerry over the compound walls to the
1: shrews below. Well, okay, but to be fair, they run back to the compound and Jerry runs ahead and closes the door on Thorn and holds it closed on Thorn, preventing people from letting him in. So I, I mean, I'm not advocating for throwing people to the Shrews without a fair trial. I'm just (laughs) saying that I understand emotionally the place that Thorn is in because I was cheering for him to throw Jerry over the wall because Jerry sucks.
0: Absolutely, but Thorn stops because everyone is staring at him with horrified looks on their faces with the shoes coming inside the house there's no longer any real safe place for them so they quickly try to craft together these steel barrels to basically create like armor like a turtle shell sort of thing um so that they can like Mm -hmm. crawl to the shore and then swim out to the boat now jerry for not really any real reason maybe because he can't swim as is established earlier and like i don't know whatever he it's decides cause he's a
1: coward it's like he acts just on impulse
0: sure so he climbs up to the roof and he's like i'm not going with you guys uh and so Anne, cragus and thorn go into the steel barrels they start walking and they make it to the shore um jerry realizes his mistake when he is all alone on the roof and tries to follow and gets he eaten thorn and cragus make it to the shore, they swim out to the boat, and now they are safe. And Kragus is like, well, we'll soon see what the results of overpopulation without adequate resources looks like. And Thorne looks at Anne, and Anne looks at Thorn, and he says, I'm not going to worry about overpopulation anytime soon, <laughs> and then they make out. Mm-hmm. The end. <laughs> yep. So... I would have laughed so hard if, as they were sailing away... In the water, they saw, like, normal-sized shoes just swimming alongside. And then the music swells, and it's like, somehow this is heartwarming? (laughs) So... And then later, people go back to the island to try to (laughs) capture a giant rat and bring it back to civilization. And that goes terribly wrong. (laughs) So... And then maybe... Later, they try to go back to the island and recreate the giant shrews to open up a new theme park, and it'll all be fine. <laughs> and then Chris Pratt is there. You're not laughing at my jokes, Ben. They're funny. Okay.
1: It's a good bit.
0: It's a good bit. Best bit of the show.
1: <laughs> so, I was quite surprised to find I actually liked the killer shrews. Yeah? Um, there is stuff about it that sucks. Yeah. So the stuff on my list of what sucks. Mm-hmm. First, the lousy shrew costumes.
0: You know the the puppets. The weren't puppets bad. are
1: not bad. Yeah. But the costumes on the dogs are sad. It's just like, like
0: okay. Have you seen the movie Willow? You've seen the movie, yeah. Willow? Obviously. Yeah. So in the beginning, when like those big black giant rat dogs are like chasing after the maid woman and like tear her to pieces. Yeah. The giant shrews look like that, but if you only had 10 bucks and you were at the dollar store to make those costumes.
1: Yeah, like it's just like kind of a, a coat of fur put over top the dogs and they've got like a
0: like oh, a, a tail. rat tail. Yeah. yeah,
1: so that those suck. And it's just, the problem is, is that they just are too obviously dogs, which I mean, isn't the dog's fault. <laughs> the next problem I think is it's got that single set cheapness vibe now this is your classic low budget stuck in one location pressure cooker plot and that's like a very valid plot we've seen it a few times now and of course it will be perfected in night of the living dead
0: yeah i agree and i think that like It's not necessarily the fact that they are only in one set Mm. that makes it feel super cheap. It's that these sets are like bare walls and are barely like held together with like spit and tape. Yeah.
1: And it's that like this house, you know, everyone's got like a bedroom and there's a kitchen and stuff. But we mostly spend time in the big living room. A lot of the movie is people coming into or out of. That living room in different combinations, which is a pretty common low budget movie problem. And it's just that Ray Kellogg, the director, does not have any ideas for shots that are not medium two shots.
0: Yeah. He he's competent, Mm. but he's not envisioning any unique shots here.
1: I mean, it's his first film, but yeah. I
0: think he does do a good job with shots of the particularly the puppets and the way he uses those. In close ups.
1: And then the last thing on my list of things that suck about this movie is. um, Racism? Yeah. So, um, Rook, who dies first, is black. And he is very much the, like, old timey, real yikes, like, black sidekick character with kind of the um, classic racist, uh, like, lingo. Of that kind of character and the very like you know subservient nature he's not as bad as he could be and captain thorne is not like as dismissive of him as he could be and like when they find out rook's dead like thorne does get quite upset so like i'll give the movie some some points that like it acknowledges that slavery is over (laughs) but um but it's a bad character he dies first like I don't know where I picked this up, but at some point when I was a kid, I picked up that like it was a horror movie cliche that the black guy always dies first. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say this, you have to get to the point where the horror movies start having black people in them for that to become a cliche. So I guess we're making progress, but yeah, it sucks. And then the second person who dies is Mario.
0: He only speaks Spanish or Spanglish.
1: Yeah, it's a very thick accent, very thick dialect. Um, he doesn't really have a personality or a character. The actor isn't really doing anything here. Weirdly, he feels like the characters respect him like slightly more than Rook, but it creates this like weird racial hierarchy of who dies in what order of like black, Hispanic, white. And it's just, it's just sort of uncomfortable.
0: It's, yes, it is uncomfortable. It's also uncomfortable with the role that Mario is just put in. Yeah. Like, even when he's with Jerry, and Jerry is basically manipulating Mario into taking his shift for, like, Nightwatch, and Mario's just like, yeah, okay. Like, there's nothing to the character at all. Yeah, he
1: doesn't really have agency. And Um, I,
0: I also wanted to point out that mario and rook are also are two large characters true um which i don't know it just particularly with mario it just seemed like the clothes that they put him in were too small Mm. just the fact that it's like yes are two racialized characters and yes are two fat characters Mm -hmm. are the ones who get got first
1: yeah i i mean i don't know maybe they were trying to do something with like you know because they get eaten like oh they they'll go for the bigger Pray first no, or we something. I don't see that though. It's no, just it's opportunity. not opportunity. It's not something that like gets called on in the plot. So yeah, it's a little weird. There's like some misogyny in this movie, but a, it's like pretty typical of this period. So it's not something that I'm gonna like call this movie out on specifically. Yeah,
0: it's not like last movie.
1: B, I think that the way that people treat Anne in the script is like intentional there's like intent on the part of the movie this is part of the plot of the movie whereas the racism here feels very like unthinking Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be anything it's just here
0: yeah Yeah. i would agree like i i just said i don't think the misogyny in the killer shoes is anything near to what we saw in the horrors of the black museum Mm -hmm. um but it's it's definitely still here and i do appreciate that it is like intentional it's not just we are in this cultural context and yeah. this is how it goes like jerry is particularly bad but he's also our bad guy
1: yeah thorn has kind of big 1950s am i a tough guy or am i an asshole uh <laughs> vibes but i have to say that although i tend to not like that kind of like toxic masculinity, John wayne kind of character.
0: He does say at one point, like, listen, I don't typically ask questions, but what the hell is going on here? He says that
1: asking questions is against his principles, which is great. Um, (laughs) But I ended up liking him because he legitimately does not want to get involved. Like he's obviously distracted by Anne when he first sees her. And there's a lot of like uncomfortable leering early on. But he doesn't actually make any passes at her. She's the one who kind of throws herself at him as she's sort of looking for a new male protector after Jerry failed so spectacularly. And Thorne just wants to leave and not ask questions. They're like, hey, we're breeding killer giant shrews on this island. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great, Doc. Listen, I'm going to head back to my boat. Like he does not want any part of this and forces him To hear the explanation at gunpoint. And then Jerry comes in and is like, what's your problem, Captain? Sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. Playing detective. And it's like, he didn't want (laughs) to know. He also gets points from me for immediately believing Anne about the shrews. Like, she prefaces her explanation by being like, you know, you're probably going to think this is a fairy tale. And you won't believe me and all the typical monster movie thing. And she's like, okay, so we accidentally bred dog-sized killer shrews, and we're all going to die if we go outside while they're out there. And he's like, shit, I guess we need to get guns. Like, he just immediately buys into it. He understands the danger. He knows what needs to be done. People don't live up to his expectations of competence, but, like, I I liked that about him.
0: I didn't really like him until he was about to throw Jerry (laughs) over the wall Uh and then, like, stopped because, like, it it felt like the movie being like, yeah, dude is an asshole. Mm. Dude isn't good.
1: Yeah, I would have, like, as much as I was cheering for him to throw Jerry over the wall, that's the... Mo- like, he can't in that moment because that's the moment that's showing us, like, see, he's not like Jerry, right? Like, yeah, he's a good Yeah, but if dude. people
0: weren't looking at him, he totally fucking would have. <laughs> like, it's clear in his face. Anyways.
1: Jerry sucks, obviously. Yeah, Jerry is
0: so tiresome.
1: But Jerry sucking is the point like it's the plot of the movie yeah um and i have to say i do admire that ken curtis as one of the producers took the role of the cowardly selfish short-sighted murderous idiot when he could have just given himself the heroic lead
0: it's also so clear that he and james best Mm -hmm. are western are from
1: western guys because
0: sometimes a western accent will slip in um, but then also whenever Jerry is, like, running for action, it's, like, when someone runs into the saloon in the middle of a brawl. And, yeah. like, you know, they're slightly squatting. They're ready to jump in. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a little the, comical. The
1: body language is very much, like, it looks weird when you're not wearing a shirt that has tassels down the sleeve, <laughs> basically. Um, but, yeah, I think Ken Curtis does a great job in the role of Jerry. Like, he is believable as this cowardly piece of shit um and i think james best acquits himself well as thorn he's got this vibe of being just exhausted from having to keep a bunch of emotionally charged idiots alive alongside himself uh which is said
0: it was very much like kurt russell in the thing
1: yes that is totally the vibe i get from him like if you put a big giant beard on him (laughs) He'd be Kurt Russell in The Thing, which is I think why I ended up liking him, because it was like, okay, I can see how this character has continued as an archetype through similar kinds of, you know, we're all trapped in one place with a monster style horror movies. Right.
0: Yeah. Kurt Russell would have thrown him over the compound, though.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally. The other people in the cast are more amateurish. Um, but I do think that Ingrid Good uh, avoids embarrassing herself and the little jokey references to her accent I thought were quite funny.
0: Fun lamp shading. Speaking of our actors here, mm. so Dr. Baines is played by that announcer guy. Gordon McClendon, yeah. We also hear him in the opening before the credits with the f- like saying and setting the context that basically, Giant shrews are moving southward from, like, Canada. From
1: Alaska, from yeah. Alaska. And they're, like, invading every last place, which is not...
0: What happens? Not
1: the plot of the movie at all. Like, ha- no. what?
0: So I just wanted to call that out. Yes. That, like, clearly it was done for, like, jazzing up the title or something like that. Uh, or this is the origin story?
1: Yeah, and that somehow the shrews all swam to Alaska and then made their way south from there.
0: No, you see, Ben, we're in the Cold War. Uh So a USSR submarine came to the island, grabbed the killer shrews, took them to Russia. They ran across that frozen walkway. The
1: land bridge that isn't there? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then through Alaska and came down that way.
1: So speaking of Gordon McClendon in this (laughs) movie, it did crack me up that every time he talks, I was like, yep, you're from radio.
0: Yeah, he he's trying really hard to act, and his way of acting is um, adjusting his glasses every couple of seconds. Yes, he's trying to be as natural as possible, and it really comes off as not.
1: Well, it's just that like his diction is very so perfect. Yeah, much better than everyone else's, and he's got that deep baritone, like radio announcer voice. Um, yeah,
0: and when he says a line, it does sound like he's announcing it. Yes. So.
1: Uh, As we mentioned a little bit earlier, um, the shrew hand puppets, they're not bad. I think they're well done. They look freaky. They're like monstrous. And as lifeless as Ray Kellogg's direction is, I think Aaron Stell's editing Mm. manages quite well at creating suspense and even like some jump scares just from shots of that puppet coming right at the camera.
0: Yeah, the puppet, we see a few different ways we see it through slits of wood, we see it digging through the ground, but we also see full on shots of it getting shot in the head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man.
1: And like, there's a bit where they like open the door to the kitchen and like one of these things just comes right at them. And like, I jumped. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about like, the science explanation stuff and how like, it all sounded pretty good. Like that was another thing I noticed. Um, the script is fairly intelligent, like the way that we get out of the situation, the way that things are set up. Um, the scientists talk, I don't want to say like real scientists, but they don't (laughs) like movie
0: scientists. No,
1: well, they don't talk like movie scientists of this era in that they aren't like well, for science, we scienced up some science for science because I worship at the altar of science. Like instead they are talking about genetics and isolating traits and like and like how um hereditary things work and like you said earlier about like how you use rodents cuz they have faster generations and like all these things that sound reasonable. Like scientific concepts reasonably explained. That said, I do think that the idea of breeding humans to be smaller so we don't use as much resources if we overpopulate the earth is very stupid.
0: Especially because it is established, well, not in the movie, but like scientific fact that shrews have to eat 300% of their body weight. Yes, so
1: this whole idea that like we're going to use like because... Dr. Craigus's whole thing is like, well, smaller creatures don't need as much food. So if we were smaller, we wouldn't need as much food. But he's using shrews to experiment on, which need, yeah, so fucking much food. And it's like, oh, and we won't overpopulate the planet if we're small like shrews. You know, the ones that there's now like 300 of on the island because they like breed so quickly. Like it's a bad, you're experimenting on the wrong (laughs) animal, my guy. And I thought that when you were giving the context setting, I thought, oh, that's why it's shrews. That it would be like, yeah, we're isolating the growth thing from shrews because they naturally shrink themselves in winter. And so that's the thing we're going to use to shrink humans. But that never actually comes up. It's just, we want to find out what the gene is that controls growth, and we're doing it by breeding shrews. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which I mean is like a real thing. Like, uh, I have a friend who their honors thesis was working with mice and looking at breeding for a longer thigh bone mm. and to see if that impacted speed or not. Um, it did, but the mice also got stupider.
1: Funny, funny how those things can be connected. <laughs> you know, you, you make the shrews bigger and they also get all the negative traits of the shrew. Um, yeah.
0: Well, let's move on to ranking. Uh, I have a feeling that I am looking lower than you.
1: So my problem is that my range is too big because I've got like this conflict happening within me between I really enjoyed watching this movie and I think it actually managed to like do some things really well as a horror movie. And like, Hey, I jumped at a scare. Like I feel like that's worth points and there's stuff in it where I'm like, yeah, I can see like the DNA of later, better horror movies in this and all that. But then there's also the fact that it is like real cheap and it has a lot of problems. And so that made it really hard for me. Um, So I was trying to think of like other movies that had the, we're all stuck in one place and we can't leave because there's monsters outside vibe. And uh, there was one that came to mind, but we didn't rank it. So it's not actually on the list. So the other one that came to mind was the Trollenberg terror where they're trapped in like, the alpine like hotel and there's the big crawling eyes outside and that movie is at number 127 and i thought this was better so i started looking up from there and ultimately i spotted monster of piedras blancas at 114 and i liked this better than monster of piedras blancas which was a very much like creature from the black lagoon ripoff so I made that my floor. And then looking up from there, it was really tough because like, you know, it's like, well, is this better? Like this got a jump out of me and I think had like better horror vibes than some of these other movies. But it's also like cheap as shit. So like, you know, I, I really struggled. And so I was looking for, okay, what are some other movies that like made me jump? Right. Not just like had a spooky vibe that unsettled me, but like made me jump. Number 49 is the cat and the canary. So I made my range 50 to 114.
0: Benjamin.
1: Yeah. Where were you looking?
0: Much lower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, let's hear about it.
0: So I was looking for an area that fit the vibe, mm. both in terms of budget, in terms of what they did accomplish. I didn't go solely by, oh, it made me jump. I went by, like, what is the whole picture here? And, sorry. Shade. (laughs) So much shade.
1: I had a more well-rounded view of things.
0: You see, I am an academic. Yes. And therefore better than you. Yes. I'm sorry.
1: You have the master's degree.
0: (laughs) And I was like, okay, but, like, I, I really needed a spot to anchor myself so i was like okay well what movie had kind of neat effects and struggled a little bit with the story or something my eyes kind of came to return of the fly oh at 145 so much lower than you Mm -hmm. i think you could make the case that return of the fly is better it taps into the film noir vibes uh its effects are better the story is tighter So I think you can make the case of the killer shoes going, you know, in that spot, probably below it. Below it is Invaders from Mars. Yeah. Also kind of suffering from its cheapness. Interesting story. Interesting uh, construction with it being like this 3D thing. Mm -hmm. But I think killer shoes is better. So this is kind of the area I was looking in, though I didn't have a set spot. Okay. So... You you kind of glossed over, in my opinion, what made Killer Shrews better than Trollenberg Terror.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Um,
0: Is it just because it's like Psychic Lady and like we happen to be in the town and yeah,
1: Trollenberg Terror, I think was too ambitious for its own good. Like it wanted to be like kind of a Lovecraftian thing, and it wanted to be like really big scale. And I think this movie did a better job of, like, creating the same kind of, like, confined area, like, feeling on a lower budget and kind of recognizing the limits of that lower budget. But on the other hand, like, you can award points for ambition. I will say that um, the midpoint between my floor and your ceiling uh, would be number 129. The ghoul. Which is the ghoul. (laughs) Above and below that are Beast with Five Fingers and Dead Man Walk. Dead Man Walk, I think, is the one about making a zombie army. No, Dead Man Walk is um, what if Dracula and Van Helsing were brothers. Mm. Yeah. And The Ghoul? The Ghoul is what if The Mummy was an old Dark House movie. Then we have Beast with Five Fingers, and then 127 is Trollenberg Terror.
0: The Beast with Five Fingers, you know, it suffers a lot from that joke ending yes but the effects ben
1: true very true i think i was probably looking too high looking at that on record folks looking down from there um my eyes come to like my world dies screaming at 139 and zombies of Tau at 140
0: mm. yeah zombies of moratau feels comparable in like, you know, we're stuck on this island. Mm-hmm. Uh, these zombies just blink out of existence. Oh, mm-hmm. no. I do feel like my world dice screaming is maybe a little better, mm. even though it like, also suffers from cheapness, but it has a lot more grounding it.
1: Yeah, it's gimmicky, but they're like trying to do something.
0: I think that's a good spot for it, actually. I feel like it's comparable to both those movies, and, and you can see the pluses and minuses Compared to both. But the fact that these shrews don't blink out of existence, like it feels like a legitimate threat, mm-hmm. whereas the zombies didn't in that no, movie. No, not at all. Uh,
1: okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I'm good with that as a compromise spot. So entering the list at the new number 140 is The Killer Shrews from 1959, directed by Ray Kellogg.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. We are also on Hive at ScreamScene, but we have not posted at all.
1: Yeah, I am getting increasingly uncomfortable staying on Twitter, even as the website Manages to keep staying alive against all odds.
0: Yeah, the clattering of its like heart against the rib cage is is certainly there.
1: It's taking longer than I thought. Um, <laughs> so, scream scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and listen to it on whatever app you prefer. If that app allows you to leave a rating or a review we would really appreciate that because those kinds of things help the algorithm promote the show to more listeners if you'd like to bypass the algorithm and promote the show to more listeners yourself we'd surely appreciate that you can do that on social media or like in real life. And if you really enjoy what we do here, we would really appreciate it if you checked out our Patreon. At patreon.com slash podcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. And all patrons get to vote in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls.
0: December has been chosen to be the nightmare before christmas and january's poll is up with the theme of new year new me
1: (laughs) so if you want to see uh what fell into that theme uh you're going to want to go to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast
0: So what are we watching next week, Ben? Is it the Gila monster?
1: No, because the giant Gila monster is really trying to be like a giant monster movie, like a Godzilla Mm. kind of thing, which we've kind of split off as saying like, that's a different genre. That's a different podcast. Um, So we will not be watching the giant Gila monster. Instead, we will be heading to West Germany.
0: Oh, yeah. We
1: haven't been in Germany for a while, huh? Yeah. Yeah. There's been
0: things going on. Yeah.
1: So the movie we're going to be watching has three titles. So the original title is Die Nacht und der Satan, or... The
0: Night of the Satan?
1: The Naked Woman and the Satan.
0: (laughs) Whoa, spicy.
1: The English title is The Head. Okay. And the German re-release title is "Des Satan's Nachtesklaven, or The Satan's Naked Woman Slave.
0: Fascinating.
1: Yeah, so we will see what that's all about next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!